Good morning and welcome to Rising. That's the name of our show, and it's a really excellent one today. Hello, Brianna. Hello, Robbie. How are you? I'm doing well. I feel like you just, you, you, you threw the tiniest monkey wrenches in the beginning of the show just to make me lose composure and laugh at the top of the block, and I'm not mad at it, You're Robbie. on to my plan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not mad at it. Well, some very interesting things going on. We're going to talk to The Intercept's Murtaza Hussein, who will join us later to discuss his reporting on the FBI's entrapment of a disabled teenager. Also, Justin Goodman from the White Coat Waste Project will break down what a recent FOIA request filed by his organization revealed about the origins of COVID-19. But first, we've got some breaking news to get into. Take it away, Brianna. Well, Robbie, Hunter Biden is expected to plead guilty to tax-related misdemeanors as part of a plea agreement with the U.S. attorney in Delaware. According to court documents filed this morning, Biden will plead guilty to two minor tax crimes. In exchange, the gun charges against him are expected to be dismissed should he meet the conditions of his probation. Legal experts told NBC News that Biden is unlikely to face any jail time in the case. In a statement, an attorney for the president's son said, quote, I know Hunter believes it is important to take responsibility for these mistakes he made during a period of turmoil and addiction in his life. He looks forward to continuing his recovery and moving forward. Uh, conservatives are quite upset about this, uh, kind of alleging a double standard going on here. Ben Shapiro tweets, if you didn't pay your taxes to the tune of $1.2 million and also signed a federal gun form stating you weren't a drug addict while, you know, being a crack addict, you would probably, you also would probably be getting a sweet plea bargain deal if you were the president's son. Yeah, and I've seen some liberals pushing back and saying, well, Donald Trump's tax crimes are more serious than any of yeah. Hunter Biden's tax crimes. I mean, at the end of the day, he is not the president as much as people want the headline to be Joe Biden did X, Y, and Z. It is, in fact, Hunter Biden. He's obviously had some troubles in his personal life that are right. salacious and maybe even interesting, but aren't especially newsworthy for folks who are really hoping for the smoking gun that showed some kind of collusion between Joe Biden. So and he acquired Biden. this gun at a time um, when he was abusing drugs. He says he was not literally using drugs at the time he filled out the form on the for the gun which that would have been a crime um his, you have to attest that you right, are not on right drugs his uh his girl ex-girlfriend at the time his brother's widow Haley biden um you know was like you can't have a gun right now you're on drugs she threw the gun away in a dumpster apparently that was near a high school that's a no-no too she's not been charged with anything but that's bad don't do that mm. um look I don't, I, I, I support gun ownership, legal gun ownership, and I don't think drugs should be illegal, frankly. Um, I don't think that's the right way to deal with people who have addictions. So I'm like hard pressed to get really worked up that he's not being charged more. I, I'm, I'm sure it is a double standard. Lots of people without the, um, the access to material wealth and fame and have a famous name and political connections absolutely would have had the book thrown at them. Um, I was seeing some reporters mentioning how some of the, the January 6th people actually, mm -hmm. when they get their home, they're later arrested at their homes. One of, they've used this charge specifically because some of them found they have stashes of drugs. They have drugs. They use that. Oh, and you, you got a wet. You procured a weapon for yourself, mm -hmm. and you're doing drugs. Use that mm -hmm. to get them in trouble when they couldn't actually get them on anything connected to January 6th. So absolutely right to point out the double standard here. I think that should be resolved in favor of not arresting people for for doing drugs, not yeah. treating drugs as a criminal issue. Um, and et cetera and so forth. And really, again, I, I've said this before, but. 
The issue with Hunter Biden that is of political concern is whether he was doing influence peddling in a way that affects his father. Right. Yeah, I, look, the double standard, I think, is legitimately troubling, especially because Joe Biden has been such a advocate of ratcheting up uh, criminal penalties, uh, author of the crime bill. It is particularly No gross. desire to legalize drugs on from his part, as Absolutely. far as I can tell, even though many in the Democratic coalition and many in the Republican coalition want to do that. It never happens. Absolutely. So it's the one level of I'm a person in a position of power and privilege who has right. a, a different standard applied to me. But if your dad literally wrote the rules that made so many people have to spend their lives in jail and who got none of the grace that the criminal justice system is now showing you, I think it is... It, it, the outcome should, I agree, not go in the direction of hyper-incarceration and putting more people in jail. But I would like to see this as a moment that is being exploited by criminal justice advocates to push Joe Biden to follow through on some of the commitments that he did make during the 2020 uh, election cycle to try to address his now wildly out-of-step position on crime from the 90s. And, you know, in the middle of the—it's it, it's wild to think that we had the George Floyd uprising. We have the expansion of these domestic terror charges that have been used against the Stop City protesters that have arguably been used to over-prosecute some of the January 6th people, that you have ratcheted up penalties for environmental activists and the like as people increasingly are frustrated that the government isn't paying attention to these issues that Americans really care about, and the only leniency that we're seeing at the same time that we have a ratcheting up of uh, criminal penalties is in the context of the president's own child. Right. Absolutely. A adult son, I should say. <laughs> adult, very, very adult son. Yeah. Yeah. So the question remains, is there, you know, okay, it, like this can't be the end of the investigation. The investigation needs to be into these more weighty charges, not into, so, so the concern I think that many conservatives have is that um, not only the double standard, but is this just, oh, yeah, yeah, we got him. Yeah, you're right. He was guilty of this of this kind of more minor thing. And we're, so we don't need to look at anything else. Got him. Case closed. All done. When really that's not what anyone who's being fair and honest is, is concerned about. Yeah. Um, honestly, the, the salaciousness of it made it generate a lot of news coverage because that is is not appropriate because the news coverage should be laser focused on the influence. Peddling. I mean, it does cut both ways a little bit, right? And this is what some of Trump's defenders are saying in the context of his uh, most recent indictment, that sure, he's powerful and wealthy and can defend himself in the ways that others can't, but he's only being targeted because he's famous. And the reason that we're all obsessed with this story is because he's the former president. Right. Do you think there's an argument that Hunter Biden might not have been under as much scrutiny, or this might not have been treated as seriously if he were just a regular, let's say at least a regular rich person, as opposed to a famous rich person? Yeah, I mean, maybe. But again, people um, people of less means than Hunter Biden yeah, get arrested for this stuff all the time. And you know, if, and if they don't have competent legal representation and they don't take a plea deal, they get the they book would be thrown at them and you could be in jail for years and years and years. Well, Ben Shapiro, I think you mentioned some of the pushback that uh, some conservatives are raising at this time. He tweeted, remember, folks, you, a law-abiding citizen owning a gun, are a danger to the republic. Hunter Biden, a crack addict who lied on gun forms and whose then-girlfriend threw his gun in a dumpster across from a high school, barely did anything wrong. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a point here that if you want, we, like, we do already have a lot of laws about the circumstances in which you can procure a weapon. So I don't, 
I, I think it's a, a, a little rich to be arguing for vast new gun control measures if we're not taking seriously the ones we already have. And again, I don't think, I, I, like, I don't think Hunter Biden is a danger to people. I, I don't really, I, like, I'm not trying to take away his Second Amendment rights or something, but I mean, I, if you're not going to punish people for wrongly having guns under the existing laws, then what is the point of anything we're doing on the gun issue? Yeah, I, I think that some conservatives have been making this argument about a lack of enforcement for existing crimes. And may, I don't mm -hmm. necessarily have an objection to that. I do think that some crimes are overly punitive, et cetera. Right. And I do wonder about the, from a kind of a civil libertarian perspective, especially given that there's a lot of variation right. in the types of drugs that exist, about what this form does and how it can be used to overcriminalize folks. I don't. I would. I would not like to see a world where someone who uses marijuana right. casually is brought up on federal charges because they technically lied on a gun form. Or, nor do I want to see a world where someone who casually uses marijuana is stripped of their Second Amendment, right. amendment rights for that. But reason. I just don't. Right. I just don't think. I, I don't think it should be illegal to use marijuana. It's like ideally right. that would not issue. be a law. And the law should be enforced. Yeah. It's just that's not a thing that should be yeah. a law. The ambiguity yeah. of, well, it is a law, but it's probably not going to be enforced, right. but it could be enforced. This, this, is, this is a That's very bad. Joe Biden problem. <laughs> this is one that Joe yeah, Biden can rectify, and it's very ironic. Especially because getting from, a, from a deterrence standpoint, my understanding from the research is that certainty of arrest and certainty of jail time does act as a deterrent factor mm -hmm. if it's certain. Mm -hmm. So you want... Clarity. You want clarity in the law. You want not something that, well, it is illegal, but we're not going to really, unless you really push us, or maybe it's like, no, this is illegal. You can't do this. We're catching you. You go to jail. You don't have to go to jail for the rest of your life, but like some jail time and arrest guaranteed is deterrent. So, mm -hmm. But you only want that for things you actually want to be illegal. Mm -hmm. So it's a bad, this kind of middle ground, well, eh, it's only kind of illegal for yeah. some people sometimes. Very bad. Well, look, the hunt for the smoking gun, I'm sure, will continue, and we'll continue to follow this story as it unfolds. More Rising for you right after this. Donald Trump sat for his first television interview since being indicted on 37 charges related to his alleged mishandling of classified documents. Here's the former president defending himself to Fox's Brett Baer. I've had a lot of things in there. I will go through those boxes. I have to go through those boxes. I take out personal things. Uh, as far as the levels and all, everything was declassified because I had the right to declassify. You want to talk about a mess, take a look at Biden where he's got 1,850 boxes. He has boxes stored in Chinatown in D.C. He has boxes stored at Penn Center. And he has boxes under his Corvette and around his Corvette, sitting in a garage for years, where it was very seriously classified. I have every right to have those boxes. This is purely a Presidential Records Act. This is not a criminal thing. In fact, the New York Times, of all, had a story just the other day that the only way NARA could ever get this stuff, this back, would be please, 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 could we have it back? And they please. asked for that. Because they have no, we they were did talking. They for it. No. And they said, I gave can you give some, the documents back? And we were talking. And then they said, they went to DOJ to subpoena you to get them Which back. they've never done before. Right. And, and but why fairness, not just hand them over then? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to NARA yet. 
And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but I've according very, to the indictment, you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. Okay, there's a lot there. So first off, I just want to say, Obviously, the fact that someone else did something wrong does not absolve you of your responsibility for also having done something wrong. Moreover, of course, it is the case that Donald Trump escalated the situation by not turning over the documents when they were requested. That meaningfully distinguishes him from Mike Pence and Joe Biden. It is also true that the things that Mike Pence and Joe Biden did are also violations that could have been prosecuted. Mike Pence the decision was made not to prosecute Joe Biden, it's still pending. But there is a bit of a selective prosecution issue here, even if you acknowledge that what Donald Trump did was worse. But what was so smart about what Brett asked there was he opened up a conversation about the actual timeline of events. Donald Trump tried to frame this as a question of, well, I just needed more time to go through the boxes. There were golf shirts and uh, khakis in there. <laughs> and I had to make sure I didn't accidentally turn over some khakis to the, to the National Archive or what have you. His talks with the National Archives began in late 2020. He moved to Mar-a-Lago in January of 2021, obviously, after he lost the election. The archives alert Trump's team to missing materials in May of 2021. He returns some documents, including the—he uh, offers to return the letters, uh, the letters from Kim Jong-un Kim Jong -un in May of, of, of 2021. He gets an official warning from the archives of consequences at the end in late 2021, okay? This is an entire year now that has gone by. At the beginning of 2022, the archives retrieved 15 boxes in which there is sensitive material. At this point, they're like, oh, we know now that there was stuff that you weren't supposed to have in some of these archives. A year into this right. inquiry. And so this idea, and then we all know what happens from there. He ends up getting, the, the raid happens in August uh, of last year, and this becomes a media frenzy. So at what point is Trump going to be forced to reckon with the idea that he doesn't have unlimited time to just sort through highly confidential material without there being some consequence for it? Right. And honestly, I don't know why he's even taking questions on this matter. Like Trump knows. Remember when so Trump knows not to release his tax returns. He says, but I'm in a you know, I have an issue with the IRS. There's a legal matter. It would not be in my legal benefit to release this information right now. That is correct. Uh, maybe it's not correct from the normal procedures for campaigns, but from a legal theory, yes. I, I would think so, too, is talking to Brett Baer or anyone else about this in any detail right now. Like, the prosecutors are taking notes. Stop talking. Yeah. Stop talking, I mean, because then they'll get you on some lesser. Yeah. They'll say, oh, but you obstructed justice because now you're saying this. But in that interview, you said a different thing. Even yeah. if they can't prove the underlying case, he's hanging himself every time he gives more information about the situation. Yes. Don't do that. But... Yeah, and look, he fundamentally, <laughs> the thing that makes him different from the others is he has an obstruction of justice case. The others didn't obstruct justice. You can say that they were reckless. Right. And to be clear, other folks who took classified information but did not do treason, were not trying to give them to another country. There is the fellow that 
that it was an NSA employee who took the documents home. I talk about him a lot because this case boggles my mind. Took the documents home right. just to get ahead of work on the weekend, and he had to spend half, five and a half years in jail. There are people who didn't obstruct justice and didn't do espionage who, regardless, went to jail under the Espionage Act. So you can make that case for why Biden, Pence, and, the, uh, and Hillary Clinton should have been prosecuted. But Donald Trump has now added to that by literally obstructing justice. And the, the tough thing that he has to contend with, that even some of his more sympathetic defender, not defenders, but some people who are more sympathetic um, legal analysts, uh, like Alan Dershowitz, say his biggest problem is that he is on tape admitting that he knows he was not supposed to be in possession of these documents, contrary to what he's saying in this interview, which is they're my documents and I was allowed to look at them and I was allowed to sort through them and, and have them. He admits on tape that he's not supposed to have them, and yet he retains them for months. Yeah, it's not good. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good legally for his own strategy. It's uh, it's it's baffling. It's really baffling. And uh, Republicans are going to be continuing to feel the frustration of this being the situation that he has given. Yeah. Even you know you can still you can have that concern. I have that concern. We vocalize this concern every day. Of course, the federal government has been weaponized uh, in various ways, and there are biases in place, and there is a chilling of speech, and there are due process issues, and there's so—and yes, they were out to get Trump on anything. And there's a, a lot of things that were less persuasive and convincing than this. But the bottom line is Trump walked right into the—he walked headfirst into this. No other rational, even remotely competent political official in any—in either party would have put themselves in this situation, and now it's going to be an issue for Republicans yeah, to deal with. I've got to say, this is one of the first times that I've seen— him look this week. I don't know that this kind of excuse making is the, the best strategic choice for him going forward. Right. I almost feel like there's a world where he says, look, you know, I, I made a mistake, but they didn't have to throw the book at me. Mm -hmm. You know, no one's ever arrested a former president before. Yeah, sure, maybe I, I should have complied earlier, but I had no sense that they were right. going to send a SWAT team to right. my house. And I had no sense that it was going to escalate like this because it's just never been the course of, of how presidents are treated before. Hillary Clinton, you know, and you can talk about yeah. some of the other ways that people have handled issues. You know, Hillary Clinton did delete emails. That's the destruction of documents. Why? I mean, you can kind of play in that space, I think, a little bit more competently, but, but so directly contradicting what we have you saying on tape. Yeah. And, and continuing to double down in this way, it, it does start to feel like a distraction from, from more substantive issues. He could take, the, he could take a, a line of attack that says, well, the real issue here is the Espionage Act. The real issue here is the overclassification of documents. Um, you know, there, there are news developments with Julian Assange happening this week. I stand with Americans who want more freedom and transparency in government and who don't want to punish whistleblowers. And I think that we should get rid of this whole thing altogether. I think that would feel like a more productive right. and more powerful position to be making And if he had done from. more while he was in office to um, to pardon Julian Indeed. Assange and do more on the freeing whistleblowers, yeah. that would have been a more credible claim. We have another clip from that interview to play where Trump uh, addresses a question, a pretty probing question from Brett Baer about why he put in all the people he put in who now uh, don't think very highly of him. Let's watch. In 2016, you said that. 
I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Well, I did do that, this and we time, had tremendous, look, we had the best economy we've ever had, this the world time, has ever seen. Your Vice President Mike Pence is running against you. Yeah. Your Ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton, he's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr, uh, says you shouldn't be President again, uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, Barr a, a gutless pig. Uh, your Second Defense Secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House Chief of Staff John Kelly weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney a born loser. You called your first Secretary of State Rex Tillerson dumb as a rock, and your first Defense Secretary James Mattis the world's most overrated general. You called your White House Press Secretary Kayla Kennedy milk toast, and multiple times you've referred to your Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao as Mitch McConnell's China-loving wife. So, why did you hire all of them in the first place? Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. We had... <laughs> I don't know. I think that's... I think that's a really good and important question <clears throat> that Trump has no answer for, and if anything can break the spell that he has over Republicans, I would hope it would be this. Not that people, not that, you know, careerists have now chosen a different, you know, are, are sailing on a different barge or whatever, mm -hmm. um, but that he picked people mm -hmm. that he himself thinks suck. Yeah, Chris Christie tried out this line of attack. He was saying, you know, it's, it's one of two things. Either he's a very bad judge of character and he doesn't pick good people, or he's the worst leader there ever has been because he did pick good people mm -hmm. and then they had bad results. Also, quick question, if someone is a born loser, that that seems to suggest that he was a loser when you hired him. Right. Like he went later, he went off on Alyssa Farrah Griffin, yeah. who uh, is a, a co-host of The View and is on CNN a lot, a very anti-Trump Republican voice. Um, she guest hosted this show a lot, worked in his administration, and he particularly denounces her for you know changing direction as the wind changes, blowing a different direction. That, I think that's fair to level at like, you know, a, a calm staffer seeking an opportunity, but some of this was ideological. Mm -hmm. John Bolton didn't was he picked him and he did not pursue the agenda he wanted. Mm -hmm. He feels that way about uh, about uh, Elaine Chow and, mm -hmm. and Mitch McConnell that they're not part of like if you didn't have the so it's beyond just well now they're saying you know they've they've chosen it they're, they're doing, doing doing different things now. It also speaks to the fundamentals of the the trouble he had enacting his agenda mm -hmm. because he did not pick people who shared his views on foreign policy and other subjects. And that's why he should not ultimately be trusted to do this again yeah. because it's not, he talks from the you know right-wing populist perspective, he talks a good game, but he did not execute because he didn't pick people who would execute on his vision. Yeah, a little humility would go a long way, saying, I was an outsider candidate. I didn't know what I was doing. Yeah. I deferred to expertise when I was picking my staff, and it bit me in the tuchus, and now I want a second bite at the apple. I'm practiced yeah. and expert at this. I've been president before, and now I know how to pick people who can actually execute my agenda. All right, more rising right after this. Public fury over RFK Jr.'s conversation about vaccines and other topics with Joe Rogan hasn't gone anywhere. Mehdi Hassan has continued to weigh in on the question of whether or not 
so-called professionals, the experts in the room, should have to go head-to-head -head with uh, RFK Jr. to discuss the issues that they say he gets so wrong. Let's take a look. The latest fake controversy on the right is the refusal by one of America's top doctors, top vaccine experts, to debate one of America's top anti-vaxxers. Yes, podcaster Joe Rogan and Twitter owner Elon Musk are just some of the wealthy vaccine conspiracy enablers currently insisting that Dr. Peter Hotez debate anti-vaxxer Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who is, lest we forget, running for the Democratic presidential nomination. Why would anyone think that's a debate worth having? What next? Neil deGrasse Tyson debates Alex Jones on astrophysics. Noam Chomsky debates Lauren Boebert on Cartesian linguistics. It's so there are a couple of things I think immediately right off the bat are wrong with that particular analogy. For one, I don't think it has to be Dr. Hotez, but because this issue area is actually complex, as a journalist who's trying to understand it, I would be benefited by more medical experts, vaccine experts actually weighing in to help interpret some of these studies. The accusation uh, that's, uh, being, that uh, is being leveled at RFK Jr. is that he's misinterpreting some studies and the like. And I would like someone who has more expertise than both I have and RFK Jr. have to weigh in. But the other issue is this idea that RFK Jr. is just some guy off the street with no knowledge at all. While I do think that credentialism and obviously going to school and having an education and a professional um, career in doing this work obviously informs your perspective in a way that I think is very useful. RFK Jr., like it or not, has also made this a personal cause of his. He's not some, you know, dum-dum off the sidewalk. He is an attorney who's been his career 30 years litigating um, toxic tort-style cases, environmental harms. When And he has said this before, and he is right. When you are litigating a um, environmental case like this, when you're litigating any case, you become an expert on the underlying science. You just do. It's it's told to us. I remember starting as a paralegal and being told there are 11 people who understand this financial instrument in the world and you're going to be the 12th. That's what you have to take on when you do this kind of work. So. I, the part of the issue with RFK Jr., when people are covering him, including journalists, is that because he does have such a head start and so much knowledge in this issue area, I think it kind of does take an actual expert to push back meaningfully. I've been reminded, uh, this is from, from Twitter, that back when it was the Trump administration doing the vaccines, remember there was all those kind of, there was many Democrats, including I think Kamala Harris, Kamala who Harris. were like, I'm going to be very reluctant to take a Trump vaccine. Guess what? Peter Hotez was one of those people telling Yahoo News, uh, so no vaccine has ever been approved on it. This is just from the article. No vaccine ever approved on an emergency use authorization basis, said Dr. Peter Hotez, a top vaccine expert, except once to overcome unusual technicalities on a military anthrax vaccine. Quote, we don't do EUAs for vaccines, Hotez said. It's a lesser review. It's a lower quality review. And when you're talking about vaccinating a large chunk of the, Amer chunk of the American population, that's not acceptable. <laughs> really changed his tune. You know what's so funny about that is that is a line of argument that RFK Jr. brought up on Joe Rogan in which he brings up from time to time because their argument is that the reason that the media wouldn't acknowledge any therapeutic benefits to some of these, you know, ivermectin or, you know, mm -hmm. th those kinds of things was because you can't get an EU grant, you can't get the emergency 
uh, use granted mm. if there is an alternative therapy that's demonstrated to work. So I'm not vouching for that theory. All I'm saying is that it sounds very close to the kinds of arguments that were being made when Trump was the one that was in the, right. in the White House, and these people were distrustful of his administration and his capacity. So th this, this is what the fundamental problem is. Mehdi Hassan, you know, my former colleague, I, you know, I have respect for Mehdi Hassan, and this isn't personal, but the, there is a willingness to say things that are also foundationally untrue from his perspective. Um, referring to someone as an anti-vaxxer when they themselves are vaccinated, their kids are vaccinated, they support vaccine, vaccines, they're just bringing up specific criticisms about certain kinds of vaccines that uh, have certain toxic elements in them that have been under scrutiny for years. That is problematic. If you want to say uh, RFK Jr. is overstating what the medical science has proven in terms of a link between these vaccines and autism, or if you want to say that he is um, ignoring the fact that the mercury that was a concern for people has now been taken out of mm -hmm. vaccines, and therefore there's a fear-mongering that can lead folks not to get the vaccines they needed to prevent measles, mumps, and rubella outbreaks. That would be a fair critique. But if you blast onto the screen like the Kool-Aid man saying, this anti-vaxxer is da-da-da-da-da, you know, you're losing credibility yourself. And to the extent that you're trying to shore up the credibility of someone like Dr. Hotez, there's two ways to do it. One, being honest about what someone like RFK Jr. does and does not claim. And two, having Dr. Hotez or someone with the authority to meaningfully push back where RFK Jr., I'm sure sometimes is wrong, actually get into the fray. Whether that's a debate or like a written exchange of questions or something moderated by someone other than Joe Rogan, I don't have a dog in that fight. But it seems obviously beneficial for the public to be hearing from the so-called experts at least as much as they do from Joe Rogan, who has a show that gets more viewership than pretty much any other program in America. So unlike you, I don't have any respect whatsoever for Mehdi Hassan. <laughs> I am not a fan in the least. And in fact, I, I'm actually not surprised by his sort of like opposition to debates in general because I think he's a very disingenuous debater. When he structures debates or disagreements, he you know uses the power of his position as a, as a host to browbeat whoever the guest is. He did that to Matt Taibbi in a very um, I think cruel and unfair way, greatly overstating the ramifications of the acronym error that had emerged in the I Twitter think that's files. True. Um, but I also think that he had a good point about the he specifically asked Matt Taibbi to come on to talk about the accusations that um, he was ignoring mm -hmm. um, the Modi censorship, and Matt Taibbi was unprepared to answer that question. So I think both of those things are true, that Mehdi was unfair, but that Matt Taibbi also wasn't, uh, wasn't prepared to ask the question that was fair. So I think if Dr. Hotez is not the right person, and look, you know, he's getting a lot of, you know, he's now speaking out about the harassment and attacks he's getting. Nobody should issue death threats to everyone. I was very, I was uncomfortable with people, like, confronting him on his home. That's not something I condone in, like, any circumstances, um, whatever your frustrations with big pharma or the federal bureaucracy, the medical establishment, like, you know, keep it civil. It's not all on this one guy. But that said, he is a he is a participant in our public dialogue about what the policy should be. He recommended, he didn't just say, I think the vaccines are great and you should take them after it was the Biden administration doing right. vaccines. Let's be careful. You know, he was more cautious about them when it was Trump's vaccine. Right. But he didn't just say vaccines are good. I think you should take them. He recommended lots of pandemic policies. He, you know, he was opining on what the government should, should make you do or prevent you from doing or require you to do. So he's, he's in the fray of ideas. Maybe he's not the right yeah. guy for debate with 
with with RFK Jr. He maybe he can recommend someone who is Sanjay Gupta was on was on Joe Rogan and they talked a lot about uh, about the ivermectin discussion. Maybe he's the right person to talk with RFK Jr. about and, what's and in the Hotez vaccine. Someone has like been that on on right. on uh, Joe Rogan before. So credit where credit's due. I think for me. It's not about debate me bro culture. What it was mm -hmm. would be beneficial is if when someone says something, we don't have to wait a week for the next person to respond on a podcast. Mm -hmm. We can just quash the beef <laughs> immediately. Right. You said this, you said this, what's the truth? Let's just talk it out right here, right now. And look, I, I get it. I get not everybody is equally adept rhetorically at that particular skill. But you're telling me that there's not a virologist and a vaccine expert in America who can sit down and have those two skills at the same time? It's really right. incumbent on all of us. The way that, that RFK Jr. felt it was incumbent on him to develop expertise in the issue area because he wasn't getting the answers that he felt like he, you know, the, the kind of investigation that he wanted to be investigating. You know, broadly speaking, his claim is that there are a lot of environmental factors, a lot of toxins in our environment. Uh, there are microplastics in our water. There are, you know, um, there is literally uh, aluminum in our vaccines and in our deodorant, and that it's largely unknown over time what effect these things are going to have on our body. I think that's pretty uncontroversial. The thing that the, so the experts, the scientists need to be doubling down on is the cost benefit of not doing something like getting uh, your childhood vaccine schedule, because there are real costs not doing so, even if there are potentially costs to the vaccine. Right. That's their comfort zone and where they should lie. But pretending like it's 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 magic hooey to be concerned about the fact that we ingest xenoestrogens and all this other stuff in our environment, it makes them lose credibility. Yeah, and their position is that this is just not something that can be debated or subject for conversation. Like, what are the, 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 the narrowing range of topics you're allowed to debate from the mainstream media democratic consensus is just an issue of concern. They're saying, this is misinformation. There can't be a debate about this because the other side is just wrong. It's decided. And, like, that's becoming a... a I mean, do you feel that way about our foreign policy decisions? Is it like the experts have said... <laughs> they do. It's very, right, they, it's <laughs> Spoiler, they do. And look, again, I'm not saying this from a standpoint I, I substantially disagree with, uh, I'm sure, a lot of RFK Jr.'s policies or his views. There are, you know, there are other sides on all this. There, you know, he cites studies on vaccines and harms. He's citing these studies. I bet we could have on someone else who would cite a bunch of other studies. But that's, that's like, science. It's, that's science. There's different and it's opinions to, and different outcomes. Yeah. We've all been, I said yeah. this yesterday, I think. Coffee's good for you. Coffee's bad for you. Eggs have too much cholesterol. Oh, the good cholesterol is good for you. There's a lot, like, uh, people are, who are treating, like, this one study was dispositive are also ignoring what, what science actually is. Studies are very narrow in their design. They give you a very narrow slice of of truth, and they're not always telling the full picture. And just because the city says there's no evidence of X demonstrated in, in whatever we were investigating, doesn't mean that the further study isn't warranted. And in some of the very studies that they're pointing at saying this was conclusive, in the study it says further investigation is warranted. Here's the other lines of research that should be pursued. One, one other thing I just want to say about this, I was listening to an interview on a liberal Maybe it was pod save or something like that. And um, they were talking to Senator Whitehouse, who apparently has a long relationship, a personal relationship with RFK Jr. Understandably, New England wealthy families are all, you know, whatever. And he was asked about if he still has a personal relationship and what he thinks of him having uh, running for president. Senator Whitehouse says, I support Joe Biden. 
and I strongly disagree with all of this anti-vax hooey and, and, and characterized his former friend as a flat anti-vaxxer, which I, I disagree. I, I don't agree with his um, statements about vaccine and autism and there having been a proven connection, but I don't think that he is anti I think that's an inaccurate statement as well. And so if you're, even your friends who you have a, like a close personal family relationship with are willing to mischaracterize you in that sort of way, I do think that is precisely why there is so much ambiguity about what it really means to be uh, a misinformation vendor. Both sides are now looking at the other completely with no trust at all because there is a complete and total unwillingness to acknowledge that there's even a kernel of reasonableness with what the other side is saying. Mm. All right, we'll have more rising right after this. Stay tuned. In the rescue operation Monday to find the missing submersible vessel carrying five people to the Titanic shipwreck site. The search began after a Canadian ship alerted Sunday morning that it lost contact with the vessel led by Ocean Gate Expeditions, reported to be on a dive approximately 900 miles off the Cape, uh, off of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The Titanic sub has been missing for over two days, and rescuers are racing against the clock. As the U.S. Guard predicts, it only has about 50 hours left before oxygen runs out. Now, according to reports, U.K. billionaire businessman Hamish Harding and one of Pakistan's wealthiest men, Shahzada Dawood and his son Suleiman Dawood are among those on board. Voyagers paid a quarter of a million dollars to join the expedition, which dives two miles down to the Titanic. Um, so it's important to put into context that the depth of the Titanic is such, and the, the technology that is able to get you to the bottom of the ocean is such that very few people go. These kinds of expeditions are very rare and intrinsically very dangerous, that the most of the ocean floor is unmapped and there, we know less about it. And in some ways, it's kind of equally, dis, uh, equally dangerous as a trip to the moon. They are under enormous amount of pressure. There's the potential for these kinds of ships to collapse in on themselves if they're not pressurized properly. Yeah. It it is very dangerous, and um, I mean, I was reading uh, David Pogue, who's a science writer who went on one of these trips and was des describing it, and it just sounded, so there were like five days where they could do this this dive where the vehicle would take him down. And there was bad weather on two of the days, so they couldn't do it, and then one of the times they went down, but they just, they did not spot the Titanic. They couldn't find it, because it's 14,000 feet down. You don't, it, it's, 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 it's. It's it's really far out there. I mean, there's no, there was no guarantee. Yeah. So the, the finally, the fifth day, they actually did see it. Um, look, I don't think anyone should have um, too much like false confidence here. This was an extremely. There are a lot of risks associated. Um, the loss of contact, the time that has elapsed. Yeah. Um, it, it is it is going to be very difficult to find this vessel at all, let alone in a time frame and the time frame might not even apply because there are a thousand things that could have gone wrong to render this you know no, no longer a rescue mission obviously right. we should try to find out what happened but um so, I, nobody yeah. should really be going into this with uh, i mean miracles can take place but right well there, there's two scenarios right that it could be on the bottom of the ocean floor which in some ways might make it easier to find because maybe there's less mo so motion no but way. even if it rises to the top because assuming it, it still has integrity then it is designed to be buoyant. It has to be pushed down. It's an air-filled 
capsule so it will be buoyant, but that even if they are floating along the top of the, of the surface of the water, it has to be found and they cannot unseal themselves from the vessel on their own. They have to be found so that it can be unscrewed from the outside such that it's still a race against the clock. Just because they're bobbing on the top of the ocean doesn't mean that they are right. safe or able to breathe. Right. I mean, it's... <laughs> the, ocean, the ocean floor is so vast and so remote. I mean, the wreckage of the Titanic sat down there for well, it was found in 1985. Mm. They, knew, they knew roughly where it was, and it's a gigantic ship. Mm -hmm. And it still took 60 years to find it. Mm -hmm. I don't, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm no expert. I have no idea. I, you know, best wishes and everything. People are working around the clock to find the vessel, but this, this sounds like a, a very um, difficult and frankly unlikely rescue. But uh, yeah, but yeah, I, this is so. This is uh, interesting. Uh, international waters are not regulated. Some some waters are regulated. The water around Antarctica, the Arctic, is. But this is this is kind of no man's land. Right. Um, so it's a it's a private company that it's was doing these. Private company, and apparently um, these these uh, vessels are uh, vessels that go to the depth that this one goes to are. Unregulated. So it's when James Cameron went to, to the Titanic for the purposes of the film, he built his own submersible. This isn't, we're, we're not in the realm of kind of military capable, Navy certified vessels. It's individuals who are kind of taking this risk upon themselves and constructing craft for their own specific purposes. So when James Cameron went down, so then he surfaced and found out that 9 11 had happened. Is that true? Yeah. Did you know that? I did not isn't know that. Isn't that wild? Yeah, so it was a little bit of a reminder. Wait, that's not right. I just read it yesterday. Because it's be right. Titanic came out in 1998. I think he was doing, um, I think the dive was for like additional footage for a okay. new release of the. Because I right. definitely Talk remember. Talk while I Google this grade. to make sure I didn't <laughs> read something. Celine Dion. Yeah, so um, the. The, it's, the Titanic, I had to ask this question because I wasn't even sure where the sinking of it happened, mm -hmm. about 900 miles off of the coast of Boston, off of Cape Cod, 13,000 feet deep. This is uh, below the level where we're kind of imagining a lot of sea life. Can't blame the orcas on this one. This is deeper oh, than... The orcas. <laughs> it's deeper than, you know, a lot of what we conceive of when we're thinking about the ocean. This is literally largely uncharted territory. The craft went underwater on Sunday morning and it lost contact with the uh, the surface vessel about an hour and 45 minutes later, according to the Coast Guard. Mm. So it wasn't very far into the, the trip at all before some kind of disaster struck. So I've just verified Newsweek fact-checked this? Yes. True. The story often repeated on social media and movie blocks is true. James Cameron was in a submarine exploring the Titanic wreck the moment September 11th took okay. place. Okay, so it wasn't... For the movie, but it was he was just taking. I think down, it was for Ghosts of the Abyss, a subsequent documentary about I Titanic. See. Yeah, I see. So a part of the discourse that's been happening about this online um, is some people who, because of shot and fraud or what have you, are being very critical of the choice to pay a quarter of a million dollars to go on an expedition like this. The idea that there are people wealthy enough, obviously, as we mentioned, a couple of uh, millionaires on the trip, people wealthy enough to to do something like this for fun, something that's very dangerous, that puts 
all of the um, support infrastructure, the guides, et cetera, at, at risk as well for kind of a joy ride has led people to be perhaps less sympathetic and more critical of this. The search and rescue efforts and the money that that entails is also drawing yeah. some scrutiny. What do you make I mean, of that? I mean, it's dangerous, but let, you know, it's, I mean, skiing is dangerous. Whitewater rafting is dangerous. All sorts of activities that people do you know, some small percentage of them. But there's a there's a, there's a scale difference yeah. here, Robbie. No? Look, you, if you want to spend your money on this kind of thing, I think that's your right. I Would I want to spend my money if I had a quarter million dollars lying around? Uh, I don't think y you do either. When we when rising really starts paying the big bucks, you and I are not taking our <laughs> submarine trip to the bottom of the no. sea No, no, but the kind but... of person, so Harding, um, English, British businessman Hamish Harding, uh, one of the mission specialists, is an adventurer who holds three Guinness World Records, including the longest duration at full ocean depth by a crewed vessel. I mean, some people, yeah, that's. In 2021, that's their thing. he uh, he and another ocean explorer dived to the lowest depth of the Mariana Trench. So he is no stranger to these kind of dives. It, you know, it will be. Yeah. You know, it'll be obviously a tragedy. So Titanic is not in a trench, but it's basically as far down as you can be without being in a trench. Yeah. Which is very far down. So anyway, we'll continue to follow this story and hope for a positive update. Um, more rising after this. The Wall Street Journal has confirmed the name of Wuhan lab scientist who was the first person known to contract COVID-19 or a COVID-19-like illness. Government officials told the journal that Ben Hu first contracted COVID amidst his U.S.-funded gain-of-function research on coronaviruses. This report does appear to confirm the original reporting of Michael Schellenberger and Matt Taibbi that we discussed on this show, who had identified Hu and two other Wuhan lab researchers as COVID's patients zero. Meanwhile, records obtained by the White Coat Waste through 2021, through a 2021 Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, rather, confirm that who was a lead experimenter specifically on gain-of-function experiments funded by taxpayers via Dr. Anthony Fauci's NIAID and the United States Agency for International Development. According to the records, the NIAID and USAID sent portions of over $41 million in taxpayer-funded grants to the same animal lab where Ben Hu contracted COVID. Joining us now to break down what exactly is in these documents is Senior Vice President of Advocacy and Public Policy at the White Coat Waste Project, Justin Goodman. Thanks for joining us, Justin. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. So what do you think the import of this confirmation of this story really is? I mean, I think this is the smoking gun that everyone's been looking for. If we can confirm that Ben Hu did, in fact, have COVID, then I think every single sign now points to the Wuhan lab as ground zero and Ben Hu as patient zero. We've been following the money since 2019 to get to the bottom of what really happened in Wuhan. We followed the money from the NIH to the Wuhan lab. In 2021, we followed the money from the NIH to gain a function experiments at the Wuhan lab. And now through our uh, FOIA lawsuit against the NIH, we followed the NIH money to Ben Hu specifically, who, as you noted, has been identified um, and was unnamed back in 2021. But the State Department and others have been talking since 2021 about these sick researchers at the Wuhan Institute, and this confirms their identity and ties in directly to the experiments being funded by Anthony Fauci and the State Department to supercharge coronaviruses, and in this case, 
a lab leak, uh, as many predicted would happen when this type of research might have killed over 10 million people and crippled the global economy. Yeah, tell us more about the specifics of this grant and Ben Hughes' involvement, because it wasn't just that, you know, he happens to be doing this kind of research at the lab, but that this research was specifically funded on an NIH grant to do gain-of-function research. Tell us more about the specifics. So Ben Hu first got on our radar back in actually in late 2019 when we identified a paper that he was the lead author on, published with Peter Daszak and funded by USAID and the NIH, Fauci's division specifically, outlining how they were going into these remote areas of China, collecting wild bat coronaviruses and then bringing them back and engineering them in the lab to make them more contagious and um, deadly. Now, so that paper came out in 2017 uh, we exposed in early 2020 the connection between NIH and WHO, but we did not know specifically how he was being funded or what his role was specifically. Um, now we know, again, that he's tied directly to these grants that Fauci was funding to, again, collect these wild viruses, supercharge them. Now, an added component to this is that Ben Hu was the lead researcher on the infamous Diffuse proposal that Peter Daszak submitted to the Department of Defense, looking to basically create what became SARS-CoV-2. This diffuse proposal from 2018 was uh, outlined the blueprint for the virus that caused COVID. And Ben Hu was the, supposed to be the guy on the ground in Wuhan to create this super virus. That proposal, as we know now, the Defense Department didn't fund it, but evidence suggests that they went ahead and did it anyway. And that's the experimentation that caused the lab leak. Justin, where is Ben Hu and the other two researchers? And again, is there any effort to reach out to them, talk to them? Have they given inter any interviews since the start of the pandemic? So I've talked to Michael Gordon at the Wall Street Journal in the course of his reporting over the last week or so. He reached out to all three of the patients zero. He said he did get in touch with Ben Hu, but he did not give a comment. Um, but as far as we know, Ben Hu is still affiliated with the Wuhan Institute. I'm not sure of the whereabouts of the other two. He, uh, Michael Gordon did indicate to me that one was now at a different institution, no longer at WIV. But we do know that all of them were there. They've all been involved in one way or another in these gain-of-function experiments funded by U.S. taxpayers. Um, a government accountability report, uh, government accountability office report came out last week specifying that of that, as you mentioned, $41 million that funded these projects that involved Ben Hu, about 1.4 million did go directly to the Wuhan Institute. Um, we don't know exactly how much of that went to Ben Hu personally, um, but we do know for certain that over a million dollars of that money did go to the Wuhan Institute through NIAID and uh, USAID, and that NIAID was slated to send even more money to Ben Hu and the Wuhan Institute for these dangerous gain-of-function experiments from 2019 to 2024 had White Coat not exposed that grant in early 2020, and subsequently, a few weeks later, Trump cut it in April 2020. So um, not only were we funding this incredibly treacherous research at the Wuhan lab on animals, um, but we were going to keep doing it had someone not blown the whistle. Mm. 
Yeah, it, it's incredible because uh, because you, some of these, like you said, some of these projects did not go forward. But there's a you know serious question about whether they were underway and then still hoping to attract funding. And then some funding was still being granted, even uh, you know during the period right in which there was this pause on gain of function research. Dr. Fauci has said under subpoena that he he or someone in his position you know greenlit under the exception clause additional gain of function research and he couldn't you know recall beyond that um, specifically what exactly it, it uh, which projects were were given exceptions to continue um, is, is that you know characteristic of the approach in, in your dealings and trying to wrestle all these documents from these agencies um, just a kind of extraordinary level of bureaucratic neglect of people not being fully aware of, of what's going on you know in a distant laboratory halfway across the world in conditions that can't be closely vetted by the US government well first of all I think it's an absolute recipe for disaster to ship tax dollars to China or Russia or any other foreign adversary for dangerous animal experiments that could cause a pandemic that was stupid to begin with it never should have happened but what's worse is that I would argue that this is way worse than, than neglect because documents we obtained through our FOIA lawsuit actually that provide for these Ben Hu documents also show that back in 2016, the Fauci's NIH division not only allowed Peter Daszak to do gain of function experiments in Wuhan during the pause that Obama instituted from 2014 to 2017. So right smack in the middle of that, not only was Fauci allowing this to happen, but his staff was conspiring in writing with Peter Daszak and the Wuhan Institute. We have the emails where they let Peter Daszak redefine the definition of gain of function so that the experiments in Wuhan that he was shipping tax dollars to did not fall under the ban and then went ahead with them anyway. Um, Fauci claims in some of his depositions that he's given in, in Missouri and other lawsuits that he, uh, his deputy, uh, Hugh Auchincloss, who then took over NIAID when Fauci retired, was the one involved in greenlighting that project. But listen, there's a paper trail for all of this. There's a paper trail connecting Ben Hu to these dangerous experiments that the FBI, the DOE, and others think caused the pandemic. And there's a paper trail of Anthony Fauci and his minions actively involved in ensuring that the Wuhan lab could do these dangerous experiments and skirt a federal ban on gain of function. And again, this is what you get when you break the rules. There's no transparency and accountability, and you're shipping tax dollars to a foreign adversary that doesn't have our best interests in mind. This was the worst case scenario that people have been warning about for decades. It's why Barack Obama and Joe Biden put the gain of function pause in place in the first place to avoid a scenario like this. And then Fauci and others skirted the rules, and I would argue caused a pandemic. Justin Goodman, thank you so much for this reporting and for joining us here today. Really blockbuster stuff. Thanks, Bob. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Senator Josh Hawley says that whistleblower David Grush's claim surrounding unidentified flying objects is pretty close to inform information he received in a briefing after the United States shot down a spy balloon, as well as other UFOs this past winter. Hawley told the outlet Wired, quote, the takeaway from the briefing is that they had thousands of sightings of these things over the years, which was news to me, so I'm not surprised necessarily by these latest allegations because it sounds pretty close to what they kind of grudgingly admitted to us in the briefing. So I would love to follow up with Josh Hawley there to hear more details. So he's, if he's just saying that, well, yes, we got a report about UFOs, unidentified flying objects, right, that is well established. I perfectly, I, I believe that our pilots, other people have seen objects that they can't account for, maybe have and have recovered pieces of objects that is that we're not sure of its origins. Grush was making the specific claim that he knows someone, he has spoken to someone who can who can speak to crafts that were recovered that are not that mm -hmm. that are not of human origin, mm -hmm. and also pilots that were recovered that are not of human origin. Mm -hmm. Is Holly saying that's what he heard in closed door meetings with? On, on this subject, because that would be pretty pretty wild. Yeah, I mean, it just it sounds like the nature or pattern or whatever was described uh, in reaction to the most recent UFO event is similar to what he had heard behind closed doors. But that could mean that what he heard behind closed doors is about non-alien craft. I mean, to your point about UFOs just being, yeah, no, I, I completely understand. But what he is, but. Other things Grush has said. I mean, the idea of non-human remains being captured or craft, machines, technology that clearly is, is of non-human origin, that's a different kind of a thing than there was an unidentified object and it turned out to be a weather balloon or an enemy right. plane or whatever, a, right. a, another country. Right, but Holly was saying that what Grush is saying sounds like things he's heard, you know, behind closed doors. Yeah, I mean, look... I, <sighs> The, he's talking to someone else, and I understand that he doesn't want to give up his source. Completely understand that. Grush. Grush. But there is something, um, we were dealing with this a little bit with Cyher's story. It seems to me that in some cases, there are corroborating details short of your source. So explain to me why you believe your source. I'm not mm -hmm. asking you to say, well, I believe my source because his name is da 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 and he's a general in the such and such. No. But I am asking you to say, well, specifically, right. what about the remains indicated they were of non-human origin? Yes, to that we're, point, that's why I specifically asked Cy Hirsch when we had him on. I'm like, well, did he have documents to show you, you know, plans, you know, paper. Sure. Papers. Sure. Or, or, or even, you know, how do you know that this organic matter was from was extraterrestrial? Did it have compounds in it that are not present on Earth? You know, there are there has been there has been a tradition of kind of fake science uh, museum exhibits in the Victorian era of monkey tops sewn onto dolphin bottoms, and you say this is a mermaid, and people go and tour this thing for years. There, there, you know, we used to live in a world where that kind of fantasy exhibition was very common. So, you know, I think it's reasonable to want to corroborate that the mound of flesh that you're looking at isn't just from a tapir or some weird animal that we have on Earth. A so, platypus, <laughs> the sure. weirdest animal of all. A platypus, or one of these deep sea creatures, or, or whatever it is. So is there, you know, 
what what about the technology led people to believe that it had to be extraterrestrial again? Is it because it was made out of minerals that are not present or common on Earth? Is it because the technology could do things that human technology hasn't been able to accomplish? Levitate, go at warp speed, whatever it is. Those are the kinds of things which I think would be more reassuring to people who are skeptical. And as the story continues to play out without more corroborating details, I do think that people's attention span is going to begin, begin to wane. Yeah. I want to see the put up or shut up. I keep saying that. I want to see. I want to see the report. I want to talk to the action, not the guy who talked to the guy who knows something, but the guy who knows something. Yeah, I mean, do, do you have? An but I mean, some, and sometimes these things are accurate. Like we're, you know, we're talking a lot today and, and this week about COVID's origins. Michael Schellenberger, just on his Substack with Matt Taibbi, you know, reported that these are the names of the three people who got COVID first. They're scientists at the lab, suggesting beyond any like reasonable doubt that that's where it came from. It was not reported anywhere else. He had a confidential source or sources that yep. he couldn't share with us. And uh, and so we you know we reported that and we said well we obviously we can't verify it but but this is a journalist we these are journalists we generally trust who think have done good work and that's what they're saying. And now this week it was confirmed also by the Wall Street Journal under similar circumstances. So that so sometimes you know somebody a little uh, I'm going to say off the beaten path or not part of an, a, sure. an institution or, or an establishment does have information that turns out to be correct. This sure. is this is going to end up being a textbook case of that. Yeah. Now, I will say that I don't know that the Josh Howley kind of weighing in here mm -hmm. Maybe he's trying militates to in favor of it. Fever. Yeah, I, I mean, I think there's something to that. Yeah. This is obviously a hot topic. People, for whatever reason— maybe because they're bored or depressed by the current news cycle, are hoping <laughs> that there's something more out there other than another cycle of two candidates that we've already seen race against each other and a Congress who has no intention on uh, uh, following through on agenda items even when they're shared by a majority of the American public. I get it. It's why sci-fi has always been a source of escapism for me, too. You sure you don't want to take that trip to the bottom of the ocean? That is not the kind of escapism I'm yeah. interested in the least. I'd rather go uh, up than down. Up than down. But, you know, I, jo Josh Halley weighing in doesn't do anything for me at all. Mm. What I would like to see is, you know, now, you know, the House is in Republican control. I would like to see them launch whatever kinds of investigations are necessary to get to the bottom of this. Is This really is something that Josh Halley and others see to be a priority. Declassify, declassify, declassify. Don't do it the Trump way. Don't just put it in a box and take it to your home, but like actually declassify it. Actually have transparency around this issue. What do you make of the argument that the timing of this particular story and of the earlier UFO story is a an elaborate distraction technique. I don't I, I don't accept that. It who is the who is the puppet master with this much control over the planet that they can I must distract the mortals with this I will inject this into the news cycle. Like who's the Who's really? the person doing it? The deep state regularly feeds uh, stories to mainstream media to get get them to talk about whatever or adopt whatever narrative that they. The deep state is doing it. The deep state is knocking us off. The intelligence agencies. Our focus. Yeah. So you, okay, so that's the theory: is that they're leaking alien stuff to distract from other things? Yeah, maybe we, we want to talk really about how the FBI needs to investigate aliens as opposed to defunding the FBI. But we're still talking about that. Well, maybe it's not effective enough. <laughs> you know, maybe they're working on it. But the idea is, you know, it, it, the, the, a lot of people are very suspicious about 
the timing of this particular story and the fact that we do tend to have recurring cycles of our, our aliens' real discourse. Would that theory mean that David Grush is in on it, though? Not necessarily. So I don't understand how it works then. Not necessarily. He could be, and I'm not saying this is true, obviously, but he could be a useful idiot. So he could have been shown documents or informed in some ways that he went to the public because he really believes it's real. But he could be being hoodwinked as well. I mean, I'm going to be beaten up for not believing necessarily that not aliens exist. I'm going to get Robbie. beaten up for thinking that Robbie. that's a little too Look, out you guys, there. But. We need, the world needs skeptics. Every um, uh, fox needs a scully. Every molder needs a scully. <laughs> and, you know, I appreciate Robbie's uh, pushback in these UFO segments. Hopefully, though, those of us who believe will get further confirmation one way or the other as the story continues to be reported out. We're home arising for you right after this. reportedly groomed a 16-year-old with brain development issues to become a terrorist, according to New Intercept reporting. The Department of Justice arrested now 18-year-old Matteo Ventura in Massachusetts last week on, quote, allegations of providing financial support to the Islamic State group, The Intercept reports. According to The Intercept, however, the only terrorist he's accused of being in contact with was an undercover FBI agent who befriended him online when he was just 16 years old. He solicited cash donations via gift cards and directed him not to tell anyone about their online relationship. Ventura's family has reportedly denied allegations that their son was a terrorist and said he was manipulated by the FBI. Mateo's father, Paul Ventura, who is on the left of Mateo in this cell phone photo, told The Intercept, quote, he was born prematurely. He had brain development issues. I had the school do a neurosurgery evaluation on him, and they said his brain was underdeveloped. He was suffering endless bullying at school with other kids taking food off his plate, tripping him in the hallway, humiliating him, laughing at him. Intercept reporter Murtaza Hussein joins us now to discuss this story. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So this is uh, not the first time this has happened by a long stretch. Um, the FBI has a well-documented history by you and other reporters of engaging in what some have described as a kind of entrapment, um, you know, connecting with lonely people on social media and inducing them to commit to crimes that they were utterly unlikely or, in, you know, incapable of doing um, on their own. What is the state of, of this case right now? He's been, he's been arrested. Is the FBI... They, you know, putting up the mission accomplished banner that we've, mm -hmm. you know, we've caught a dangerous terrorist, et cetera. Well, yeah, they actually did put up the mission accomplished banner in the form of a press release immediately after the arrest, which really highlighted the case as a seeming victory against terrorist financing or uncovering of a dangerous possible ISIS fighter or other type of terrorist in the United States. And that initially was also the narrative that a lot of local and regional news outlets which covered the case did, which is quite typical. The FBI press release or DOJ press release uh, following these arrests often drives most of the news coverage uh, thereafter. But I find covering these issues for about a decade now, there's a very, very often more to the story than initially being proclaimed in these sort of official communications. And this case, I think of all the cases I've covered over the years, stands out for being particularly egregious for a number of reasons. Uh, Ravi mentioned that, uh, and Bree mentioned that uh, this young man was very young. He was 16 years old when it started. He had uh, 
history of uh, developmental deficiencies uh, that sort of would make it harder for him to do something like what he's being accused of. But also, very, very interestingly and importantly, in the course of his investigation, which went for two years, uh, Matteo Ventura actually, towards the end, tried reporting the FBI's own informant to the FBI. Hmm. He tried calling it several times to say, hey, I have information about terrorist recruitment. I'd like to uh, give this information to you in exchange for some sort of reciprocal agreement. And that's actually how the investigation almost came to an end. Uh, not long after, maybe about a month after, he started calling the FBI and trying to report this informant with their own employee, FBI undercover employee, uh, he was arrested by the FBI. So there are a lot of very, very troubling aspects of this case. And I'll add that also this is the government's own narrative. This is not even the defense narrative, which will probably raise other extenuating factors. The government's own narrative is that he was do this was what they're doing for them for two years, and he even tried reporting them themselves to the FBI. So I think that you know it shows that in many cases these uh, you know these investigations, these arrest announcements, uh, they bear very very little resemblance to what the narrative the government's even put forth and what you can call these sort of mission accomplished press releases and uh, public statements. So how did they end up targeting Matteo in the first place? Are we to understand that the FBI is just trolling internet chat rooms for 16-year-old children who they can induce into believing that they're having a relationship with ISIS and to not tell their parents about it? I mean, why did they even drill down on Matteo of all the people on the internet in the first place? So the FBI does engage in informant and undercover operations, both in the real world and online quite extensively, focus on different communities and different ideological subgroups. In this case, you know, they found someone online, they developed a relationship with them, a friendship with them over the course of a number of years. And when you're 16, even without developmental or neurological impairments that Matteo had, you can be quite impressionable and you can want to impress someone online who's your friend. This FBI informant told Matteo, you know, gave him compliments about his physical appearance. He asked him to send him videos and photos of himself, complimenting him on his beard and saying things like that. If you're a kid who's experiencing bullying in school, it could be quite, uh, you know, could really get an emotional tie with you. So the FBI visited Matteo's house some time ago, maybe early in the investigation, and met his father, met him, and told him, hey, you know, your son's doing things on the internet, which you shouldn't be doing, you should keep an eye on that. And that's really an appropriate response, actually. Mm. But his father said that after that initial initial conversation when the FBI connected Matteo with someone who they said was a counselor, he never heard from them again. He thought the issue had gone away. In reality, they continued talking to him for the two years. And then at the end of it, I think they'd have to know that he wasn't really a threat. He had no plan on his own to commit any act of violence. He was not in touch with anyone from ISIS that we know other than the FBI's own employee. Uh, he declined several offers or attempts to try to travel abroad at the FBI's uh, request to go join ISIS, which he didn't even know existed at that point. And still, when he turned 18, after investigating from age of 16, they arrested him. And I think that from my own perspective, looking at these cases for cases like this for many, many years, I think there's institutional impetus to do that. The reason is if you sink two years in investigation in investigating somebody, regardless who they are, if they're a threat or not, it's a lot of labor costs. It's a lot of you know resource de devoted, and you feel a pressure to generate cases. And you're rewarded as an FBI agent for generating cases, for generating arrests, not for walking away from cases. 
you're rewarded for those big splashy headlines and press releases. So I think in this case, uh, you know, more could come out about this case at discovery and trial, but it seems very, very strongly. It's one of those cases in which the FBI helped generate a case by grooming or otherwise encouraging a very vulnerable young man to break the law. In this case, by doing something very trivial, most people would say, by sending small amounts of gift cards to the to an FBI agent at their request. You say they were trying to induce him to to travel abroad. Did they have a specific plan for him, or something, or an actual violent act they were trying to get him? Or they they were you know trying to persuade him to agree that he should travel to the Middle East to meet with an ISIS recruiter or something like that? Well, you know, there's so many things about this case which are so eyebrow raising when you look at the government's complaint against uh, Matteo Ventura. He didn't seem to know where ISIS was because ISIS, you know, a couple of years ago in its main territories of Iraq and Syria ceased to exist more or less. So he had to kind of be guided that, hey, if you want to leave your country, if you want to leave the United States, you can go here, you can go to Egypt. Uh, he was asked to do this several times when he was 17 and 16 years old. And when he was 17, he actually came up with an excuse, this is by the FBI's own narrative, he said that, you know, I can't join ISIS anymore. I hurt my leg. I fell, hurt my leg, and I can't uh, join this group anymore. I'm sorry. I can't talk anymore. So he tried to get out of it. And later on, when they tried to help him book flights or encourage him to book flights to Egypt, he didn't show up for his flight. He didn't show up that day. He stayed home, and he started calling the FBI and trying to report what was going on. And you have to keep in mind that a lot of the communications between Matteo, the FBI, and the FBI informant are included in the court documents today. And they really speak to somebody who is not, you know, intellectually fully developed, you know, as a young person, but also somebody with, uh, you know, some of the issues his father talked about, about premature birth and the implications of that. He's trying to negotiate with the FBI, asking them for $10 million, $10 million in duffel bags full of cash and immunity in exchange for reporting their own informant to them. He's, you know, coming up with very childish or juvenile sort of excuses why he can't talk to the FBI anymore. And they're still existing and talking to him and sort of, you know, keeping the door open to that. So it's somebody who I think is very, very unlikely to have been able to pull off, you know, any type of violent plot, which was not any specific plot mentioned at all in the allegations against him. Very unlikely to be able to travel on his own. He couldn't book flights because he couldn't, didn't have a credit card, didn't have a passport, all things which the FBI encouraged him to get on his own. And, you know, it seems like there's somebody who needed help or need from his family or from law enforcement to his family to guide him away from online activities with. Unfortunately, instead of getting that help, they kind of helped the moment came when they arrested him. Mm. Well, what a just very disturbing case, obviously bad on its own and really an indictment of what the FBI's priorities are. We have a lot of criticisms of what the FBI chooses to focus on to do this for two years is just um, is incredible. Um, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Meghan Markle has been accused of faking interviews made under her lucrative podcast deal. This is according to Pod News. The Duchess of Sussex's staff conducted interviews with guests for her podcast, Archetypes, and her voice was later dubbed in. The <laughs> allegation comes just days after Spotify and Archwell Audio, the podcast company owned by Prince Harry and Markle, 
ended their $20 million partnership. Mm -hmm. Marco was reportedly unable to fulfill the content benchmarks set by the pricey 2020 Spotify deal, only producing 12 episodes. Both parties say the parting was mutual, but Bill Simmons, a senior Spotify podcast executive, unleashed on the royal couple. Here he is speaking on his own show this past Friday. Let's listen. Just I wish I had been involved in the Meghan and Harry leave Spotify negotiation. <laughs> the f grifters. That's the podcast we should have launched with them. We, um, I got to get drunk one night and tell the story of the Zoom I had with Harry to try to help him with a podcast idea. Do it. It's one of my best stories. Dude, we, we, there hasn't been a Drunk Let's Simmons just, podcast. Let's both get drunk, drunk and then it'll just be drunk. Save that idea. <laughs> I'm planning to exit Rising, and they'll just. I'm going to work from home, and they'll just dub in my my voice. You can AI. have an interaction with a cardboard cutout of Robbie, and then we'll later sub me in. Yeah, look. So first thing I would like to say, as a podcaster and a poster, people really undervalue, undercount the dedication, time, talent, and skill that it takes to do a podcast. And I'm only half joking. A lot of people think, oh, it's a cool thing to have a podcast. Everybody has a podcast. Let's just buy a Yeti microphone and everyone's going to want to hear what I have to say. But Obama had a podcast with Bruce Springsteen, one of the most popular musicians in the history of America and one of the most popular presidents in the history of America. And it did not do well and almost nobody wanted to listen to it. Because boomers are over. <laughs> it's over for you, boomers. Well, I think, you know, people, people don't understand you know, there's this parasocial relationship that it develops that comes from being authentic and open. And Obama, because yeah. of the nature of who he is, can't be authentic and open. It had to be this, like, corporate product. And everyone who's had these kind of a canned corporate, oh, it would be a good idea to get Meghan, Meghan Markle on a podcast, those types of ideas that aren't organic often fail. And I'm, I'm not surprised that she struggled to even come up with what she wanted to say because it's, it's tough to be put in that position. She can't be potentially as honest as a lay person would be in that format, and it's not going to go well. Moreover, the schedule and the rigor of it is not nothing. The editing is time-consuming. It's more costly than people think it's going to be. And you, people got to stop offering folks podcast deals. Everyone just, can't do it. Just being famous doesn't... It's not enough. If you can't ask insightful questions or carry an interesting conversation, it's more difficult than people think. I can remember being a real little kid <laughs> and um, talking to my dad and we were watching like the local news in Detroit, um, whatever, the local Fox affiliate or NBC affiliate, whatever it was. And I asked my dad, I'm like, is that a, is that a high paying job to be the, you know, the morning host of the local news show? Mm -hmm. And my dad was like, it's a, probably a pretty good paying job. Yeah. I said, it doesn't seem hard at all. It doesn't seem like they're doing anything. It just, they're just reading off a screen and they're just, you know, asking questions. I bet anybody could do that. And my dad was like, no, it's probably a lot harder than you think, Robbie. You said challenge accepted. Years later, my dad was right. It is hard. Yeah. It is very hard and not everyone can do it. And they're... Spotify and other companies naively thinking that just any famous name paired together, whatever will instantly be something people want to listen to. It doesn't work because people want authenticity. Mm -hmm. And you can't, you can't, obviously, you can't fake authenticity. Mm -hmm. Well, it wouldn't be authentic if you did. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it's funny how badly these ventures yes. have gone, where the company was like, what could go wrong? We have, uh, we have one of the, here's one of the most famous people on the planet. Yeah. So uh, the other part of this and why it's getting so much attention is that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are particularly reviled, especially in the United Kingdom, because they are perceived as having, 
you know, made the crown look bad, given up an opportunity to have all the wealth and privilege of being in the royal family because they didn't want the exposure, wanted to have a private life. I think Americans are more sympathetic to that idea. We're not as royal focused. We don't right. like a monarchy. We appreciate independence and all those kinds of things. Um, but there are, even in the United States, people who are very critical of them. One, one aspect of the critique is that some people didn't like Meghan Markle because she is black and they don't, you know, they think it's a break with tradition and all those kinds of things. So this is getting, a, a, I think, a heightened degree of attention for those reasons and because they had sometimes come off as out of touch and privileged uh, as a consequence of complaining about being born into a circumstance that many, or marrying into a circumstance that many people at least abstractly think they would very much enjoy. But, you know, my enjoyment of this is purely, the, my, my shot or five here is purely as a podcaster and as a poster uh, who I think has the, her own creative outputs oftentimes um, undercounted and diminished. So I say this to all of you out there, Spotify might have the monetary backing. <laughs> I might, I might be a powerhouse in many respects. It has the money to buy Joe Rogan, but it can't, at the end of the day, fabricate a quality piece of content out of thin air. Shout out to all of the independent podcasters <laughs> that are still making it work. Well, and shout out to all the people behind the scenes, including on our own show. Yeah. I think that was part of the subtext here is frustration. Right. That she, she wasn't even showing up. All you do is show up. <laughs> she wasn't doing the bare minimum. Um, they were doing everything. And obviously these shows, there's so much you know going on behind the scenes. There's so much that we rely on. Um, to help come up with topics and what we're talking about and assembling the elements, the videos, we play, the all scripts, that stuff. Yeah. There's so much going on. And so to disrespect the staff at that level, I mean, I guess that's, that's the royal treatment. Yeah. And look, maybe something will come out and there's more to the story and maybe she was dealing with an illness or a personal issue or maybe there were creative disputes about the direction of the show that, they were, that were difficult to resolve. Who knows? But look, Pete Buttigieg had a podcast. I remember there was this point like during the summer of 2020 where all the, the, the old primary candidates basically got a podcast. I think uh, one of the, Julian Castro, I guess, had a podcast. Hillary Clinton had a podcast where, um, uh, what's his name, who sings Ordinary People and is married to Chrissy Teigen. John Legend. John Legend showed up a lot for some reason. Yeah. And I tried to listen to all of these. I was in the process of starting my own podcast and was curious what was out there, what people were doing, what the field looked like. It was dreck. Yeah. They, they're unwilling to say anything that they wouldn't say on an MSNBC broadcast. So just let them be interviewed for seven minutes and go about your day. I don't care what kind of coffee you drink, Bruce Springsteen. I want to hear gritty, authentic stories about what it was like backstage in, you know, the early part of your career. I want to know what it was like to record We Are the World with Michael Jackson giving everybody, everybody the side eye because they weren't good vocalists. Boomers <laughs> like, are over. We don't care about Bruce Springsteen anymore. We're now, it's going to be millennial Robbie, Robbie, culture Robbie. People care for the about next Bruce. 30 years. <laughs> and we're just, we're just doing millennial culture. Gen Z can wait their turn. Oh, boy, you That's sound like a boomer. I think they've kind of skipped over yeah, us. We're the boomers now. We're the boomers now. Look, I'm doing that, that meme. We are, me. we are the <laughs> boomers, boomers now. now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, on that note, we'll have more rising for you right after this.
Andrew Tate, self-described misogynist and internet personality, along with his brother, have been indicted in Romania on charges of human trafficking, rape, forming an organized crime group, and this is according to the prosecutors. So Andrew Tate obviously was arrested um, some weeks ago, spent some time in jail, has been under house arrest. He's been allowed to tweet. He's been sharing his thoughts again, him and his brother. Now come the charges, which are for sex trafficking, rape, et cetera. Um, it sounds like the prosecutor's theory is that him and the brother lured women to their home um, under the pretext of it being, like, just dating, and then induced them to make sex videos, prosecutors say, under threat of violence and abusive comments, et cetera. So those are the charges. Yeah, um, but he profited from, to the exclusion right. of the women. I, I mean, I, I, right. they were a kind of sex content generating, uh, adult content generating factory for him, and that he allegedly engaged in techniques known to sex traffickers, wherein he held himself out as a sincere romantic interest to the women to induce them to basically create products that he could sell for his benefit. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, part of the controversy was that he was a very popular online figure that was, you know, carried a significant degree of uh, influence with young, arguably impressionable boys and young men who were taking some of his teachings about how to interact with women, how to get women to like you, and how one should model themselves as a man very seriously. So long before he was accused of any actual criminal wrongdoing, he was the focus of a lot of public critique because of the kind of masculinity that he was modeling. In fact, I think that we have a clip that demonstrates some of the flavor of the content he would put out. Mm, let's play that. I recently posted a question on Twitter asking, would you rather have sex with a transsexual, which is a legitimate 10, or a woman, which is a legitimate one? And everyone's sitting there clicking woman, 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 because they think they're going to be gay if they do anything else, but they're not actually thinking about the question. When I say a one and a 10, I mean Megan Fox with a d that's the tranny, or Hulk Hogan with a p that's the girl. This is the question I'm asking, Megan Fox or Hulk Hogan? So you're thinking, well, I don't want to be gay, so well, I just uh, clicked the girl, the number one, did it? You're going to f*** Hulk Hogan. Okay, there's a f***, he's got mustache and muscles and shit. He's all hairy, big dude, six foot five. It's pretty gay to me. That sounds pretty gay. I don't care if it's a That is gay. It's a great theoretical question. One of those, would you rather fight, like, a thousand um, rat-sized horses or one, one horse-sized horse rat? rat. Yeah, those kind of, what would you do? Yeah, the kind of questions that many of us liked to ask each other when we were at middle school sleepovers. And I think part of the critique of Andrew yes. Tate Definitely is that he has a very young those theoreticals. <laughs> back in middle okay, all right. <laughs> but like you know, he there's something very much like teenage boyish about the way that he presents to the world. But in other respects, very adult behavior. Uh, some background: he he is uh, has one British and one American parent. Was raised in an estate in London, I think it's in the United Kingdom. The son of a catering assistant and a chess master. Uh, this is from a write up in the Guardian. Uh, through his 20s, he worked as a TV producer while training as a kickboxer at the local gym, going on to fight professionally and win world titles. In 2016,
2018, his public-facing career appeared to be over uh, when it had barely begun, when after being cast in Big Brother, reality TV show, he was ejected from the house over a video of him hitting a woman with a belt. A second video emerged shortly afterward in which he is shown telling a woman to count the bruises he apparently caused to her. Both Tate and the women denied any abuse occurred and said the clips showed consensual sex. Um, when the Me Too... Um, the woman, the victim said that, yeah. too. Yes. The next month, uh, he apparently waded into the Me Too water, saying that women should bear responsibility, uh, bear some responsibility for being raped, a view which he has repeated uh, afterward, and which led to him ultimately being barred from Twitter. Yeah. That kind of censorship debate uh, sparked some of... Uh, some significant defense of him and elevated his profile as well. Yeah, look, I want to be careful here because obviously I think he's said a number of things, including the quotes you just gave there, that are vile. And uh, I don't think he's a good role model for anyone, let alone young men. I don't think, I don't think he's someone that should be celebrated. He he seems to have this kind of cult sway, cult following. Mm -hmm. I think that's unhealthy and improper. Um, I said I don't think. Um, I, it is not and should not be a crime. I mean, maybe it is in Romania, I don't know. To, to say really deeply misogynistic things is not something I want to imprison people for um, or for consensual, seemingly dangerous or violent, but consensual sex between sure, adults. but that's is not what we Well, no, but right, you said in that example, for instance, the victim, and I, I know from the U.S. context, uh, my colleague But that has reason, nothing to do with what, that's a two-year-old article. That has nothing to do with the charges. No, no, no I know, but... Well, but I don't know are the the women here in these circumstances. Do that, you know? Do all of them, or some of them, or which ones feel that they were abused? Is this the authorities just projecting onto that their own view of the case onto that? I, I know I, in the well, just just wait a minute. I know from the U.S. context that sex trafficking is a crime assigned to um, consensual prostitution type arrangements, which as a libertarian I don't think should be illegal. I don't know that that's the case here. I'm just approaching it with a little bit of caution because I have seen our own law enforcement um, utterly weaponize this category for things that are unsavory or that we don't approve of, but are not is, is not protecting victims from predators, but just going after people who are engaged in something that is not accepted. Sure. But there are very specific charges here of keeping women who are making sex tapes for him that he's not paying them for under false pretenses. That's right. the claim. I, so I read that. what I read from the Guardian article as background as to why people haven't liked him for years. But that has nothing to do with the criminal charges that he's facing now. Um, but it doesn't mean he doesn't have a, a number of defenders. Uh, Kat Turd, famous poster on Twitter, uh, tweeted, whether you're Julian Assange, Donald Trump, or Andrew Tate, uh, if you speak truth to power, the corrupt governments of the world will try to jail, bankrupt, and erase you. You know, it's an interesting <laughs> So I'm grouping. somewhere between you and Kat Turd on this, I guess. <laughs> I don't but, think— But what have I—I I haven't said any—I haven't made any claims. I'm just talking about what he's actually yeah. been accused of. But I don't just, know right. anything about his guilt or innocence at all. Sure. but And just because he's been accused of something— just because that's law enforcement's view of the case. And again, specifically on these issues, I think law enforcement is often not actually doing what's in the best interest of victims of sex crimes or anything like that. Yeah, I think, I think that is true, but I also think it's wrong to imply, when we also don't have knowledge of this, that mm -hmm. these were just prostitutes that are getting caught up in you know, anti-sex work police roundup. What what is being alleged here has nothing to do with sex work in any traditional sense. These are women. What has been alleged, and this is just what's been alleged. What's been alleged is not that 
you know, they're going after sex workers, and this is this is a sting. That they are there are women who he held himself out as having had a personal re romantic relationship with, and because they think they're his girlfriend, they're willing to perform them uh, perform sex acts on tape, which he then markets and uses to get very wealthy and buy all of his Lamborghinis and stuff that he shows off in his videos, and then doesn't pay them and restricts potentially, arguably, allegedly, their ability to leave and you know, recoup the, the actual benefits of their own labor. That, that's what he's being charged of. So there's a, a group of behaviors and activities that people don't like because they just seem repugnant you know, to the conscience, but aren't illegal. And now there are these legal charges that you know, we'll see how they pan out. But I, I don't think that it's at all accurate to compare him to Julian Assange, no, who's I don't a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> reported. I, I don't know what truth he has spoken to power. Right. Um, I guess the truth is, would you rather right. Hulk Hogan or... Right. And maybe there's more of a selective Megan prosecution argument Fox. that can loop these three people together, but I do think it's worth distinguishing someone who's being selectively prosecuted because they embarrass the U.S. government by rep reporting on details of their um, repugnant actions around the world. Donald Trump, who really did a self-own own goal by simply not returning some documents, maybe selective prosecution, but completely avoidable. And Andrew Tate, who has very proudly engaged in behaviors that are certainly to many people, morally repugnant and potentially now crossing the uh, line into um, violence against women or uh, sex trafficking, allegedly. Well, we will see. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll continue to cover any updates on the COVID origins reporting. Very interested and invested in that, so we will absolutely be talking about it again. Please stay tuned. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. See you later. Bye-bye.